This is Ethios with Bemneti Meskin from ethiospodcast.com. Ethios is a podcast that chronicles the lives and accomplishments of people of Ethiopian heritage and people of Ethiopian influence around the world. It's about what they do, how they got to where they are, and what inspires them. We've got some exciting announcements this week. We are excited to launch our very own Slack channel. So if you're a Slack user, please go to ethiospodcast.com slash Slack and join our community there. We really want to use this platform for being able to connect with other Ethiopians, with other people in your industry, to share resources, to find mentors, to find mentees, to just be a platform for us to really grow a community. So if you're not using Slack, you should really start using it. And if you're already on Slack, join our community by going to ethiospodcast.com slash Slack, S-L-A-C-K. We also want to remind you to leave reviews on either iTunes, Google Play Store, or wherever you listen to this podcast. We want to hear from you, and also it helps us with our ratings, and it helps us get discovered by new users. So really want to encourage you to uh, leave a rating of this podcast if, you're, if you've been listening and if you enjoy listening to it. Uh, please head on over there and, and leave a review. Finally, we're looking for writers. So if you enjoy writing, if you've ever considered writing, or if you have written for a blog, we'd love for you to join our team. You can work from anywhere. Uh, it's on a volunteer basis. We just require a couple of hours a month. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I think you're going to enjoy doing this. So please shoot us an email if you're interested, or if you know somebody who's interested, send us an email to info at ethiospodcast.com. Once again, that's info at ethiospodcast.com. I am really excited about this week's guest. His name is Jomo Tariku. You know what? I like drawing objects. I like drawing chairs and cars and things. I don't like drawing people, actually. And I said, this makes a lot of sense. Went home, read it, and I said, you know what? This is what I want to study. Jomo was born in Kenya to Ethiopian parents. But as a young boy, he grew up in Ethiopia. He's always been drawn to electrical art pieces, souvenirs, and furniture pieces his father collected while traveling across Africa. That, combined with volunteering at a local wood shop, catapulted his interests in furniture design. Jomo graduated from the University of Kansas with a degree in industrial design. As part of his graduation requirement, he defended a thesis by designing a full line of African furniture and concluded that the market needed an alternative to popular European and other established furniture designs. From that point on, he has made it his personal mission to bring about a series of African furniture designs to light. Jomo has been designing and innovating centuries of African utilitarian design into his contemporary furniture line for the last 20 years. He finds his inspiration in African hand carvings, old buildings, body art, pottery, baskets, hair design patterns, and traditional woven textiles. Jomo, welcome to the show, my friend. Uh, thank you for having me, Babnet. Man, it's Great. a pleasure. I've been wanting to do this for a while, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I've been the problem. <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, you know, it's fair to say that you had a pretty big exhibition to get ready for. So, yes. 
Um, well, before we really start getting into it, like, uh, what is an industrial designer for somebody who doesn't know? Uh, I think the simplest explanation and the one I always give uh, whenever someone asks me is a product designer. Uh, because sometimes when you say industrial designer, people then say, so you're an industrial engineer, but I'm not an engineer. So an industrial designer is uh, uh, a profession that floats between uh, what you could call easily art and actually engineering. So uh, another definition of it is a person who creates uh, everyday usable product. Sometimes it's so transparent, which means it must be good design, that you don't even notice that you're using it, you know, uh, like a light switch. But someone designed it, yes? Someone had to decide down is switch off, up is switch, switch on. So stuff like this, someone who actually looks at people's psychology and the way they think and the way they operate machines and try to minimize the interaction between the two, between the human and the machine-created object. Uh, would be another definition of it. See, in my house back in Ethiopia, man, the down switch actually turns on the light. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody that's a better design. Yeah, some industrial designer didn't get it right, or the electrician didn't get it right. <laughs> One of the the electrician was the industrial designer. So, <laughs> nothing against electricians. <laughs> well, before we talk about more about your career. Yes. I want to know about um, your upbringing. You sound like you have an interesting upbringing. Your name isn't very Ethiopian. and I, yes. <laughs> So you were born in Kenya. So tell us a little bit yep. about your upbringing. Uh, yes, I was uh, born in Kenya. My uh, uh, father at the time uh, was serving uh, the Ethiopian embassy as a military attache or the Ethiopian uh, uh, government during the emperor's time as a military attache in Nairobi for uh, uh, the three uh, Eastern African countries, Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. Uh, and uh, the embassy in Nairobi was the one uh, that uh, managed uh, the, the, his uh, type of work he was doing out there. So I was the, I'm not the only uh, child born there. My younger brother was also born in Kenya, but since I was the first one, I got named Jomo. Uh, my younger brother, surprisingly, is uh, called Falaka. <laughs> he did what, keep does, his, wait, uh, what does Jomo mean? So tell us. Uh, so I've heard a few versions. Uh, one is uh, it means a farmer, and another one is because Jomo Kenyatta adapted it uh, as a burning spear. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll take both. Um, <laughs> farming is a very honorable uh, job. You could be the farmer with the burning spear, so it's yeah, just kind of a, exactly. I get a remix of both. <laughs> yes. So uh, in the re I can uh, I can get into uh, quickly why why I got called Jomo. My father during the uh, Italian invasion and most uh, families uh, have stories like this. Uh, was a refugee in Kenya, and that's the first time he got to learn how to read and write. Wow. So he's always thought um, Kenya contributed a lot to who he was and wow. uh, what he achieved. So instead of a refugee, when he went back as a, a government official uh, representing Ethiopia, uh, he thought it was a big honor. So as a first son born in Kenya, he, uh, of course, gave me the name Jomo. Uh, as a kid, I 
don't think I appreciated it much um, because people used our kids around my neighborhood. <laughs> Call me Jomo, Jomo, Jomo. And I said, oh, this name is getting to be a bit tiring, you know. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I didn't care for it much. And surprisingly, my grandfather on my mom's side um, uh, in secret used to call me Isaac. Uh, because he wanted to give a biblical name uh, to his grandson, I am assuming. Uh, but uh, I, I remember my dad caught him once and said, don't you ever do that again, because I have a very good reason uh, for calling him Jomo, because, again, uh, Kenya means a lot to him. Uh, it is, uh, uh, like I said, the, during a, a, a very hardship uh, time, he got a lot out of it within that limit. And, and he also, um, and he had, he built a lot of friends. He made a lot of friends during that refugee camp that became his friends during his lifetime. So um, there's a huge connection. And now, now at this age, at my age, I really love my name. It's, yeah, it's uh, a great name. What I do for what I ended up getting into, I think is uh, is the uh, more than perfect name for me. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So you went. What age did you move back to Ethiopia? So I was four and a half probably when I went back. So I don't remember it other than the photo albums uh, that uh, my parents kept. Uh, but uh, lucky for us, my mom worked at Ethiopian Airlines, so we've had uh, a few chances to travel back to Nairobi. Yes. And. Uh, while in high school, we, I think, maybe visited two or three times. So, uh, yes, I know Kenya as a kid. Uh, mm. Not not right after uh, I, I was still four, of course, I didn't remember it. But but Kenya, even now, it, it's very dear to me to, for myself because I've seen it as a growing up. That's awesome. And, and the other surprising part is also my wife went to college there. So it's, um, you know, I, we can't seem to let go of Kenya. Yeah, yeah it's definitely in the blood somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where did you live in Ethiopia? I lived in Addis, uh, close to uh, Bole. I guess uh, it's, uh, I don't know if, uh, I'm sure people know it. It was around Israel Garage, between Israel Garage and uh, Masarata Christos. Our uh, house actually was a few doors down Masarata Christos. Uh, yeah, and uh, I actually attended that school uh, my first two years before I moved on to uh, St. Joseph in second grade and uh, finished high school actually there. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's my uh, play area. That's awesome. Why, why is it that St. Joe students were, like, so academically advanced? Like, I mean... Honestly, like every year it was like telling you highest my scores for ministry or Senjo, like, you know, and, and I really uh, don't want to go to that one because I know what I did for it. <laughs> but no, seriously, though, right? It's I mean, on average, it seemed like there was a lot of smart guys that went to school there. Or maybe it's just because the girls weren't around. <laughs> yeah, no, no distractions. No for distractions. Us, unless you're hanging out by the fence. A, and then so many doctors and engineers. You know, and, yeah, yeah I mean, I uh, um, for me, it was strange because, you know, how art and design is uh, in Ethiopia. And I don't think St. Joseph was any different for that mm -hmm. matter. Uh, you stop even learning it either in sixth or eighth grade, I've, uh, I've lost track of it. And it was never serious. It was never encouraged 
while we were growing, of course, your parents always say, uh, and every designer and artist probably has heard it, uh, anyone around my age, uh, you know, you better learn your sciences, you should be a doctor, you should be this. Art is a hobby, don't, you know, don't even entertain it. But for me, surprisingly, I was good. I was good academically until uh, I would say fifth or sixth grade, and I don't know what happened. After that, it went all downhill. Uh, surprisingly, my younger brother, who was we were in the same grade, we were a year and two months apart. Uh, one of those very smart ones who uh, actually doesn't even bother studying and did very well. You know, didn't do his homework, doesn't study, but he aces all his tests, so he does just fine. Um, so it was, uh, you know, dichotomy in our house. There's this guy who doesn't who studies a lot, which is me, but performs less. But I've always enjoyed drawing. And there's on the flip side, you know, my younger brother who excelled in school, uh, but didn't put enough energy into it. Um, but I, I don't know what the phenomenon of the whole, you know, Senjo doing well. But, but you know, during, it, it was a strange year, I would say, for uh, class of, I'm class of 87. Uh, it, I, I thought it was one of the strangest experience in life where uh, most of our, my classmates left for America. Those were, you know, uh, years where the country was, you know, going into the territory of being very unstable. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of parents were worried, a lot of, of parents much as possible, as much as they could, send out their kids. Were your parents uh, worried? Yes, my parents were worried. Actually, surprisingly, I was in the U.S., uh, uh, I think, in ninth grade, uh, in the hopes of getting into um, uh, a school somewhere in Galveston, Texas. But mm -hmm. my father, at the last minute, pulled the plug on that, saying, yes, we're desperate. We want you to go to this school. And me and my younger brother loved, loved the school. I uh, loved the campus. It was one of the most beautiful campus we saw. But for some weird reason, he uh, he uh, said no. No, bring back the kids. So we came uh, to the U.S. with my uh, mom. And we went back. So we went back and finished high school. And now looking back, actually, I feel like it was one of the wisest decisions uh, done. I, I know we were desperate because... Most kids were leaving, and the whole idea of going to America was to to come and stay back then. Uh, as a ninth grader, you can imagine. Uh, us coming back, we were not happy at all. But now as an adult, I, I enjoyed that three or four extra years I got with my own parents. I, I, I grew up as, a, as any other classmate. Was a, a, I felt like a normal kid uh, without any type of other type of pressure, even though things were not really going well uh, during that time and people were worried about military service and all this. And e even that, you know, when I entered 10th grade, my my mom, you know, when Kabali people came and knocked on the door, uh, we're trying not to register. My mom registered, me and my brother. He said, oh yeah, I have two young kids here. So and, explain, explain the ramifications of that because I'm sure there's some listeners who have no idea you know, what the threat was and, and why why parents wouldn't want their, their boys to grow up or, or, you know, stay in the country? At that time, there was military service. Um, of course, um, people who were elites, elites or people with connection um, skipped through that somehow, yeah? 
so, and there is the rest of us. My dad being a former military person, yes. Did he know some people? Yes. But he, they did not want to risk anything. So even though we tried not to participate in any of these, um, you know, uh, the Marxist-Leninist training on every Sunday morning you had to do, my mom registered us. So I think <laughs> I was probably one of the few people in 10th grade, me and my brother, 10th, 11, and 12th, attending these things. We were below the required age, but she said, if you don't do this and time comes to get your support letter, you're not going. Because someone is going to say you didn't do or you didn't fulfill your stuff. So we did that. Then we did the, uh, the literacy campaign. We taught two years every night, Monday to Friday. Uh, it actually was one of the most uh, interesting experiences as a kid. First of all, my dad was so strict, we couldn't leave the house. So for us, these nightly Monday to Friday things were uh, exciting. It's a reason to leave the house without being told not to leave the house. You know, uh, just uh, we have to go to the Kabbalah and teach. Yeah, you're kidding me. So you taught Amharic to? Uh, I <laughs> surprisingly I taught maths, even though I was bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, my students, the students who were given, I think my younger brother had the challenging ones. We had the. They picked these five amazing students who a year before did not know how to write or uh, read. But in one year, they excelled so much, they said it didn't make sense to put them in, uh, uh, in with the rest of the group. So they took him out and they gave it to, uh, to three of us. Uh, we had, I had two other um, guys who were like me uh, from the Kabbalah teaching. Same, I think maybe they were a year older than me or we were in the same grade. So uh, we, we taught those five and I was just flat out impressed. They usually knew... Uh, Certain things much better than us. Wait, so correct. a year before that, they couldn't read or write? Nope. Wow. These, these, these five they picked, and they ranged from one was a guard, if I remember right, an elderly man. One worked in a shop. Another girl was, I think she was around 14 or 15, but never had a chance to go to school. Wow. So, I mean, it was... For me, it was an eye-opening experience. Initially, we resisted this whole idea. And there were things that the Kabbalah told us to go and do that I didn't like. We were sent to like to help in factories or something. I remember going to the paper mill. Uh, we, we went to the medicine factory once. There were three or four factories they sent us to. The factory workers didn't appreciate us and we didn't appreciate that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we didn't know we ruined things. Uh, and that's yeah. their serious job. You know, yeah. we, we were... Um, uh, getting in the way of things. We're not, we're not supposed to be there, yeah? But it was required by the Kabbalah, or you, they tell you to go out and dig a ditch. I remember doing, going door to door also, they called it Asasa back then. This is, I wait, this we're... isn't the same as Zemacha, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> this is Zemacha light. <laughs> that, nothing happens to you, yeah? There's no. It's beta. Yeah, you just take paper and you register people, you know? It, it, so that same type of uh, people that uh, that approached my mom approached me uh, or approached us when we knocked on their door. And so we'll say, is there any 18-year-old here? Does he participate in the Kabbalah? Whatever, whatever. And if they say yes, most people say no. So I don't remember actually registering anyone. It's like a futile effort. You know, you go knock, you ask if there is any 18 or 17-year-old. 
and the person answering the door says, no, there is not. I am sure there is one there, but they say no. So you <laughs> This is crazy, the, dude. <laughs> you move on to the I next wonder door. if you've ever knocked on our door. And <laughs> no, we didn't. We skipped the phones. <laughs> you know, you don't, yeah, then you tell the cavalry guy, hey, hey I, I, I knocked on 50 doors. <laughs> so what, what else can you do? Because <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I find my mom unique. I mean, someone knocks, she just kind of literally says, yes, I have two young boys here. But I, I think that helped us on uh, once uh, we did the, the is it EC, EC, ES, the metric exam? I even what it is called now. And we went uh, to the Cavalier youth, whatever guy and said, uh, hey, uh, we're, uh, we have, um, uh, we want to go to America. We have a college. Uh, we've been accepted, yada, yada, but we need you to sign this. And, you know, that's when my name kicked in. And he said, who are you guys? And I said, my name is Jomo. And he said, oh, I know that name. Uh, sign my paper while I'm standing there. <laughs> it's the same guy my dad has been like, you know, it's, it's, now I laugh about it. But my dad went to the same Matatbet or whatever it was called, to uh, to the bar that this guy supposedly hangs out in looking for him every evening, thinking if he comes in, he was going to say, hey, my kids need to go. I'll buy you a drink. Please uh, let him leave the country. You know, he went through this exercise for a week or two. Then me and my younger brother said, uh, this is not working. We're going to go wherever he lives. And we run into him. And the first thing he said is, uh, hey, and what's your name? I said, Joe, oh, yeah, yeah. You, you guys have been teaching or whatever to that effect. So I said that that weird name kicked in, you know. If my name was Ababa, I think you would have. <laughs> He's like, which Ababa are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's fascinating, man. <laughs> so anyway, so that's pretty much what led um, uh, to me coming to the U.S. But that, that's the neighborhood I grew up in. I, I enjoyed it. I, we made friends when we were little there. Um, uh, is my parents still live in the same house? Um, of course, there. Uh, my dad just uh, last August turned ninety-six, uh, so he's Congratulations. still. Congratulations! Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, amazing. You know, health is difficult, um, mm. but it, it, my both my parents are alive. That's fantastic. Uh, and I still go and visit every uh, every year or so, and it's it's a it's a fun place to go back and visit. That's awesome. Yeah. Now I know you volunteered at a wood shop in Addis. Yes. Do you, do you remember where it was? I want to call it volunteered. So that's another story. <laughs> you didn't uh, really volunteer? When we entered 10th grade, you know, other than, of course, doing the Kabbalah thing, uh, the other thing was that summer came when, uh, I guess, uh, cramped break or summer uh, winter break for, uh, uh, I guess, us. And he said, you know what, you guys are 10th grade. I don't want you to sit down on the, you know, get on the fence and be calling people names and all that <laughs> and getting in trouble. So he said, I have uh, I know this guy uh, who has a wood shop down close by Masarata Christos. Uh, I'm going to go introduce you. He will teach you, you know, how to draw, paint. And he took us. Uh, his name was Amara de Saling. He had uh, a very small shop, uh, but it did an amazing amount of work out of that shop. Uh, now, you're not allowed to touch machines, uh, 
but it was, you know, it was something to do. He, he, whenever he had a chance, he would teach us how to paint. Uh, my brother actually excelled in that. Uh, I was more interested in what he built, what were things, you know, these things, and what he built were like beds and, um, you know, ashtrays and coat hangers and all of these things. And we would help him just glue things, varnish it pretty much. Yeah. Maybe stain some of them, but uh, you know, we were, we did that for two summers. And wow. uh, I, I think in a way now looking back, uh, I am sure some of the interest started there, but for me, drawing things and drawing products and drawing objects, surprisingly, I never, I didn't care about drawing human beings. But uh, the earliest I can remember is I used to like drawing, you know, the tanks and the whatever they used to show at the annual mascara bullet uh, thing. So all those ended up on my uh, notepad. And when I say no, or books, so it would end up on my history book. And it was it almost got me in trouble once where my dad said, I can't believe my son is getting bad grades in history. Go get your book. And I was oh, like, no. My book, every page has a drawing on it. <laughs> Not even that. It would, I remember this. I think it's seventh or eighth grade was a blue history book. And including Marx and Engels and everyone is smoking. I've put hats on them. They're wearing gloves. You know, <laughs> I have created them. They I said, there's no way I'm going to show them this. Now it's <laughs> my grades are bad. <laughs> so lucky me, my brother is in the same grade with the same book and does not even open it. It's like brand new. So I, I just took that one. <laughs> That's amazing. So, but, drawing thing on books and I, I think I, I, the way I draw is unlike I like drawing thumbnails and it started in school why because I'm hiding yes I'm hiding from teachers I'm hiding from others uh, something pops in the head I do a, a very tiny drawing and I still do that and of course I'm an adult now no one is monitoring me but even even when I was in college and my professors are saying do a big a big rendering using your sketchpad, I I just could not adapt to that. It would take me like an hour of tracing and enlarging back then, you know, we, so I'm a graduate in 93. It's not like I can throw it in Illustrator or expand it, right. you know, plot it. You have to do it by hand and by using your marker and your pastel. So I really struggled doing large drawings. It just didn't come to me. And once I got done with college, I went back to drawing small. And all these chairs I design and everything, they're thumbnails. Really? Uh, yeah. Like when you talk get, about thumbnails, how big are you talking about? When you say they probably no larger than two to three inches tall. You're kidding so, me. Even smaller. It is just a bad habit. I'm on the metro and I do most of my drawings on the metro, by the way. It's probably really efficient, though, because you can fill up this, a sketchbook it, very slowly. Point. It is very efficient because I can do 10 of them. Yeah, well, I'm looking at the other one, so I can spin it off quickly. So I build one on top of the other and top of the other. Before I flip the page, I have 15 small thumbnails. Then I flip the page and start all over again. Wow. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of a, I actually like it again because uh, my sketching time are when I go to uh, to my day job in the morning. I get on the metro, I take out a small sketch pad. 
and I just start drawing. Nice. Uh, you know, I don't do it every day, but I do it like three times a week or something. So you went to school at University of Kansas. How does a guy whose name is Jomo, <laughs> whose name is from Kenya, but was raised in Ethiopia, end up at the University of Kansas? Yeah, that's a good Again, this boils down to um, my, uh, my dad. My dad attended the Commander Staff College in uh, uh, Leavenworth, not the prison. I have to state this again. Fort Leavenworth is a military college uh, in the same town. Uh, that's where um, I think be, be, before you become, I guess, uh, uh, <clears throat> a high rank officer, that's where back then they used to send you. A lot of his friends and a lot of officers in Ethiopia graduated from there during the emperor's time. So he came there, he had what they called civilian sponsors. These are American sponsors uh, who after years, he did not connect to them. But when he started looking for a school for my oldest brother, he went back to Kansas like any in other cities. But in Kansas, he ran into them again and he said, hey, uh, this is a situation we're in in Ethiopia and I need to bring out my son. This is what he's facing. And they said, hey, yeah, we'll, we'll be his sponsor. So uh, they sponsored him. Then the uh, people they found through their uh, Baptist church also ended up sponsoring me um, and so on. So we moved to Kansas, and that's that's the reason why we went to Kansas. Uh, my, my brothers and my sister attended a small um, Nazarene college uh, in a town called Olathe, Kansas. I did that one year and the art teacher there said, you have to leave this school. This is too small. You, I can see your passion. And this is something I haven't done in years where I got back into oil painting as an elective. And she said, you are painting like crazy and you don't enjoy other things. You enjoy this. Why are you here? What are you doing here? You know, this is an elective here. We don't have art school in a Christian college. So that kind of, you know, reinvigorated me again, saying maybe this is what I'm good at. I, in that small college, uh, the first summer class in fall, I tried computer programming. Uh, first year was easy. Then second year was just, I was terrible. <laughs> then kind of I took some business classes and again, I sucked at it. I said, this, I'm quickly running out of options here <laughs> and the only thing i'm good at is again drawing and painting and all these other crafts thing so with my older brother uh, we started looking at a few universities locally and one of them was university of kansas and me and him uh, went just knocking on doors it was summer school was closed most of the professors were out but one door was open you know we knocked and say hey um uh, hello, uh, you know, we introduced ourselves and we said, uh, you know, I, I, either me or my oldest brother said he wants to study fine arts because that's, you know, my previous, my other professor saying you're going to, you can do very well doing painting. So I just attached to that and said, I'm trying to do study fine arts. Uh, we're just going around talking to professors here. Uh, and he said, uh, why do you want to do fine arts? Uh, I said, I guess that's what I'm good at. You know, I, at least at this age, that's what I know how to do. And he said, have you considered industrial design? And I said, what is industrial design? I've never heard such a thing. 
said, I'm an industrial design professor. And back then again, there's, so he pulls out one of his industrial design books and goes to the photocopy machine, copies a few pages and says, read this, understand it, see if what you see here is something you like. And he said, it's going to prevent you from doing painting. That's awesome. You can do painting anytime you want, you know. But see if you have passion to do more. And I said, you know what? I like drawing objects. I like drawing chairs and cars and things. I don't like drawing people, actually. And I said, this makes a lot of sense. Went home, read it, and I said, you know what? This is what I want to study. Wow. It was just, if I hadn't run into uh, him, I wouldn't, I don't think I would. I mean, it's amazing when you look back at your life, what connects what and it keeps going because these same people also at some point brought me back to teach one year at university where I was going through immigration stuff and they helped me with my immigration stuff. This professor is called Professor Richard Branham and I think he still teaches there. And one of our um, uh, design school dean also helped out with this. But when when I run into a lawyer, like after I graduated, I didn't do anything. I worked one year. I didn't have green card. I stopped working. I was at home. Uh, luckily, my brother purchased a few of these tools, like a table saw, band saw, da-da-da. Uh, I had more things than the shop I went to, like in... And Addis, yeah, the one mm, I was telling yeah. you about. I had more tools in my tiny garage than he did. So that's, but to make the story a bit short, I, I, I me and my other friend uh, had gone and visited a lawyer because a, a, another friend of ours was in immigration problem and he was in immigration prison. And this friend of mine that was a former roommate, uh, uh, his name is Zeke comes to my home uh, after, you know, after two years after I've graduated and I'm working in the shop. I'm all dusty and building some prototype. I'm experimenting with it. He comes to me and says, come on, let's go help this friend. I need someone to come with me and talk to this lawyer. I said, I don't like going to lawyers. Leave me alone. Two lawyers <laughs> are my money. Why are you coming and nagging me? This is my pro I am just whining and whining and he would not leave me alone. I said, you know what, I'll take a shower and come with you. You know, it's in Kansas City. So we drive out there, and I'm sitting there with him uh, talking about the case of our friend who's in prison. And the lawyer out of nowhere asks me, uh, so what do you do? And I said, uh, I actually don't do anything. I don't have a job. You know, I'm, uh, uh, but, you know, I, in my free time, I design African furniture. And I've been building portfolio. And then he asked me out of nowhere, he says, um, is, that, is that something unique? And I said, yeah, I believe it's unique. I don't see anyone doing it. And I said, this was my thesis in college. I, I've actually defended this idea. And he said, you know, I'm, uh, I used to be a labor lawyer. And there is, uh, there is a visa for people like you with you know, unique talent. And I, I almost dropped off my chair. <laughs> You're kidding the me. other two lawyers have taken my money telling me there is no such thing. Wow. I've given up. <laughs> I say, I say, then he says, while I'm working on your friend's case, he pulls out some labor law thick book, turns it to some page and say, just make sure whatever you're saying actually is in sync with whatever this law is. Wow. It's called 
national interest waiver, whatever. I'm reading at it and I'm saying, the only thing missing is my name in here. <laughs> Everything I've been saying is actually here. So at the end, this guy filled out all that work. We went through the, the whole defending thing. He said, bring me evidence. I gave him stacks and stacks of evidence because by then I have, you know, I have so many drawings, so many sketch. I've actually prototyped stuff in school, out of school. So it was no problem for me at all just to get to him. And I, you know, my work permit just showed up and my, uh, I didn't have to go see a judge. Actually, wow. he didn't leave me for saying, you know, we should have a court date. I said, I I just got my work permit. It doesn't say, you know, it doesn't say come to court. That's amazing. Now I'm saying I'm done. He said, you're done. You know, you know, next is your green card. And that's so that after that is when I, I at least I felt a bit relieved in around 2000 is when, you know, at least some movement on getting together with friends, uh, getting a little bit of investment money from them opening our studio, trying to do a furniture and, wow. you know, trying to promote it and all of that stuff. You know, what's crazy is that you mentioned two life moments that could have easily not have happened. You could have easily not walked around campus trying to find other options and you could have easily not gone with your friend. And it's really an eye opener to the opportunities that we miss because we just don't say yes to you know, something that really doesn't suit us. But, exactly. um, I put it as providence because if if it was up to me, I was ready not to do at least the lawyer one. I was 100% sure. I didn't want to go. I mean, I fought him, you know, I'm, you know, I'm matarabing him and everything. So he would leave. <laughs> <laughs> he insisted, you won't leave. Yeah, <laughs> what hilarious. can you do? <laughs> so you you opened up a studio right after that? So uh, after that, few, uh, five of uh, five of us got together. Uh, we had a mini reunion. Uh, uh, guys who graduated with me, my best friends, and we sat down and said, "You know what? Uh, we've been we've seen what you've been trying to do." Let's, let, and actually, we talked about this uh, years earlier. Is like, can we do something together in a few years? You know, let's go our separate ways, but let's come back together. So we actually did that. Uh, and we said, uh, let's give this thing a try, you know. And we did. Uh, we did it for eight years. Uh, it was, uh, I'll admit, it was a struggle. Uh, again, uh, we I had a, a graphic design business on one side that was trying to feed the furniture business on the other side. And it was... It, it was always a constant struggle to stay afloat and do things and promote this thing where our, especially the furniture industry and the whole thing is based or revolves around, uh, you know, uh, European furniture, you know, be it Scandinavian, uh, the Italian, Danish, or whatever, and few Oriental styles, uh, African furniture, a line of African furniture. You know, I don't, I don't want to uh, say I am the first or anything when it comes to this. Uh, what I'm saying is, it, in my thesis was, if you want to buy a line of African furniture, and this is in 92, 93, you cannot walk in into a store and do it. So my argument was, you should be able to. Africa has 
so much depth when it comes to providing you you know design themes you know is it you can you can get some from architecture you can get it from pre-existing furniture like pachumas and uh you know other type of chair headrests uh you can get it from you know shuruba uh, from the mido like the mido chair i designed uh you know i i'm saying that this i have whenever i find books i just buy them well there's just so much and it, it's not really my idea is not uh, uh only about ethiopian themes it's about the whole of sub-saharan africa even northern part of africa and i'm saying i lived grew up in a continent that has so much depth when it comes to this but no one knows it unless a european designer somehow makes it to africa and says look what i've discovered and i'm saying i don't need to be discovered i grew up with this my dad whenever he traveled he brought these things home for me i sketched them all these things that i tell you about i sketched were there they were in my house yeah it was it was another object for me i grew up with this for me to sketch uh, an african chair is not a big deal it is not finding myself it is me you know this is part of me i grew up with it so my whole argument was for other african designers including me and now at least i see uh, some resurgence with you know david adeje designing the uh, uh, african um, the african american museum with african theme i think architecture has finally in the western world has started accepting these things as normal things yeah i think he also had pushback but the kind of my idea is it's the same it's global i want global reach i i don't want berjuma to be stuck in few african countries and that's it do you Why? think so i had a question for you so do yes. you think it's because there are times where um the the african part is too it's too african for example you know anytime i see something that's quote unquote ethiopian designed by somebody who's not a designer it's like everything is you know green yellow red and like large <laughs> yeah. you know and it's not designed well and um do you, do you think there's an element of it that you have to really tone down the inspiration which is has to be rooted in african but then really let the design for itself like speak i i kind of agree with you i i think there's always been to be patriotic to love your country it has to have the green yellow red i i've i've had few of these incidents where i would design something for a client and says is a cigar and what he jacket i'm saying but that's not the design okay yeah it's it's not i mean no. your picture is on it you're ethiopian all right yeah. I don't need to do that on everything that you want. I agree. Uh but for people they and uh our people are you know when they pay you to do something they think they cannot let go. They have to put 100% comment. And there are, there was once a, a a client who almost told me just show me how to do photoshop and I'll do it because I don't like what you're doing. And I'm saying wow. <laughs> how do you deal with someone yeah, like yeah. That? So Yes, sometimes you need to tone things down, sometimes you need to express it more. Uh you sometimes you want to need to make it a bit transparent, but what I want you to do is you walk by it. 
in the you look at it for three seconds, you can say, "Is what? What is it about this thing?" You know, it, it it's like looking at some Japanese furniture. You know, it, it's very clean, clean lines, and you walk by it, and if you're into furniture, and say, "That that looks Japanese." Okay, you know, that's a good not, question. So. I, you know, you walk into a place like Design Within Reach or Michelin mm -hmm. Gold, you don't see Japanese furniture in there. There, there are a few. They're very contemporary to a point you don't know they're, uh, you know, uh, the Noguchi table or something. You look at it, you probably have seen it, and you don't know. But, you know, they have had a very long uh, design history. And we have too. It's just that what I want to... At this moment in my life, in my design uh, career, what I want to bring out for me at least is uh, I'm not trying to create another Italian furniture looking thing. Um, like I was telling you earlier, uh, we have a very deep culture. I want to base that on that. Why? One is definitely it makes what I design unique. It also exposes people to our contribution and it is done by an African. It's not an import. Is a combination of things I am experimenting with. And if one of us, one of us African designers who grew up with these things don't do it, someone will. I mean, the, the, our, our industry right now is being defined as um, the ethnic furniture line, for example. And ethnic furniture is kind of a weird way to group us because it includes, you know, African culture. It includes Aborigine culture. It, you know, it, it covers so many things. It, it includes um, stuff from, from uh, Philippines and Malaysia and uh, certain areas from South America. Uh, that's, you know, even me calling it Africa. Africa is a, is a, is a continent with 50-something countries. But what I, what I want to uh, use that is to make a point saying these 50-something countries are so rich with culture, all right? Uh, and my, my criticism of some architects also within Africa is you have so much within your country, just a, a fingertip away from you. You walk out, you see traditional dresses that has amazing patterns that could be adapted to so many different things. Or you, like I was telling you earlier, shurubas and uh, facial paintings and other things that we can adapt and make unique. I don't want to go to a city that looks exactly like Dubai. Yes, Dubai is Dubai. And I was recently there. But when I go to, let's say, Accra, I want to get the Accra feeling, right? And if Ghanaians do not reflect their years and years of history, their Ghanaian history and their architecture and their clothes and their design, I feel like I've been to a country I don't know. Yeah? It's, it's very... Yeah, it would, so I, as a designer, might be a bit demanding when it comes to these type of things. But when I, you know, when we go to Mexico or something for vacation, I want to experience the, you know, we go to the little art fair thingies, trying to see what others are doing. What I, you know, I take my son and show him what you know the local painter or local artist is doing. It's not that he didn't see it in his class here. It's just that I want him to experience a totally different way of approaching it. You know. It's true. It's a good point. That so one you know one thing that you might not know about me is that I worked at an agency called Ziba Design for about two years. Oh, and, cool! Um, yep. It's one of the 
kind of leading medium yes. size industrial design, design firms. Company. But we yep. did everything, and I, I worked in a, a graphic arts department. So, but you know, I get to work with industrial designers on a project, and actually, out of that agency, like three or four of the guys that I I went I I was I worked with, are now like my closest, you know, if not my best friends. And I'm just telling you, if I had a chance to go back to school, I would definitely pick <laughs> industrial design as a major because the process is fascinating. I mean, the the kind of the concept phase, the research phase and everything. Um, so from your perspective, like I want to hear what your process is when you start a project. Everything. Tell me everything from kind of where the, does the idea come from? Where do you look for ideas? How do you develop the idea? until you actually make it. So, you know, if you can talk about the recent chair that you had, uh, I think yeah, you had a couple I of different chairs at the Dubai Furniture uh, Conference yeah. or Festival. So the, um, I, I, I guess inspiration comes from different places. You know, you could be looking at a book, you could be watching a video, you could just be surfing and you say, you know what, I, I can do a, a, a chair that, looks better than this or works better than this. So uh, the, the inspiration for the birth chair came from another design, my other uh, uh, designer friend, uh, Addis Kidan did. Uh, we do have uh, one called birth chair uh, on our website. So again, birth chairs uh, or birthing chairs in Africa are, there's so many different types. They, they are two slabs of uh, lumber, one intersecting the other the seat part going through the backrest part. Uh, it's used for birthing uh, uh, and it is pretty becoming pretty popular. People use them as accent pieces. But I, for that specific chair, I started just experimenting with this. You know, can, can I approach this chair from a different perspective? What, what can I change? I like the whole idea but I want a chair out of it. So again, I, I don't know how many thumbnail sketches of this idea I've done. It was con consistently, and I, I built enough to a point where I said, okay, now I need to do a 3D model of this thing because I, got, I, got a, I cannot get the proportion and the angles from any of this. I, I can do an orthographic drawing of it. I, I can do it at slightly 3D, but the scale if it is right or wrong, I couldn't figure it out. So the next step was uh, to whip out free few 3D models. Uh, so I did. I do. My, I use Rhino for 3D modeling. So I did uh, a few of those. Did some rendering of them. I kind of said, "Oh, okay, I like this idea." Uh, now the challenge: How do you bend this thing? You know, is it, next to um, impossible to bend a three-quarter inch plywood. So, <clears throat> yeah, I don't have, it, it, again, if I had a plant or I had a, a stamping machine, that's actually easy. You know, you glue a whole bunch of veneer and bend it on a, on a, uh, uh, on a mold. But I didn't have access to that. Uh, so first thing I did was I bought a pump with a vacuum bag to help me with that. But then I found out uh, after the fact that veneer is very expensive and it's not something to experiment with. You know, one sheet can cost you 80 to uh, $100, and I needed about 12 of them minimum. Uh, and I just, in my mind, said, I know I'm going to mess up the first one. Are you ready to waste $1,200? And 
and I said, I probably need to do five trials of this thing. So, you know, it, it easily adds up. So what I did was I started, uh, uh, the great thing about these days is you can watch YouTube about different tricks. I am telling you, I watched every type of video on how to bend wood, be it steam it, you know, the chemical, you know, you name it, everything I could find from a boat builder to furniture builder, I checked them out. So I got the idea, maybe steam was the next one. So I bought a steam, steaming, I don't want to call it a steam machine, it's a, a decently priced thing on Amazon. I got that, then I went and built a steam box uh, for bending it. Then I went and bought the thinnest one eighth inch plywood and that experiment failed. So it was the vacuum thing didn't work because my lumber was too thick in that. And the next step was to do what they call kerfing, which guitar builders and speaker builders use to bend wood. Uh, but the thing with that is structurally is not the strongest. You're weakening it. But I experimented with all these things. And uh, the chairs that I ended up taking to Dubai, uh, one was the seventh version and one was the eighth version. So I had six failures before I got these two to work. Uh, and it takes a lot of energy. And I can tell you, uh, I even took, uh, luckily from my day job at World Bank, I had enough accumulated vacation days. So I took off two weeks from that, combined them with other things and all. And I spend my, I would go as early as possible to uh, tech shop. I would spend my day. I learned how to use the CNC machine, which, you know, they teach you there. Uh, I redesigned my stuff with each model that failed. I improved on my design. I improved on the sitting angle and all of these things. So even Wait, so though there was... I have a question for you while you're, mm -hmm. while you're going through that. Did you build like a, a mini model or anything like that first? Yes, I did. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. So... Uh, the the one I did was I I, I used foam core and that's yep. what we use you know in, uh, in like you said for that yep. Ziba design so yep. you know yeah so I foam cored it I kind of had a good idea about proportion once I did my foam core design and it's basically so, taking a piece of foam and just using sandpaper and just kind of sanding it off and making a small shape how big was the the model it was a quarter scale model so i what i did was the 3d model the full scale 3d model that i modeled in rhino i just scaled it down by a quarter and printed it out as a pdf and just you know super uh, not super glued i spray mounted it on my foam core cut it bent it stuck it and like i said you know until i got the proportion right and said i like what this looks like and uh, then I, what i did was i kind of developed right now i have about 50 different uh, African patterns that I've developed. So I cut five of them as a backrest, you know, went through stain. And I have some of the videos on my Facebook page where I, you know, go through this process. But, but it was pretty much, I think, a, a six-month dash to get to Dubai. And it, it, again, uh, you know, talk about uh, either providence or, you know, connecting people. I Maybe a year earlier, I ran into... Uh, Matasa uh, Yosef, who was orga organizing the Addis Ababa Design Week. Uh, I met her online and we started chatting uh, through another uh, you and me mutual friend, uh, Ephraim, uh, who mm. said, you guys need to talk and figure out something. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> he knows yeah, everybody. He, he introduced me to you too. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
so we we started chatting back then all i could send her was uh, a 3d representation of my design idea which she showed in addis uh, on the first design week and that what she tried there got her invited into the dubai design week uh, event which was called downtown downtown dubai and it was me and uh, hamara uh, from Actual, who were uh, that uh, represented, you can say Ethiopia, through a design week at this uh, to show our stuff. So once she said, you know, Dubai is interested in doing this, it's been a mad dash for me. First, to find a builder. The builder didn't work. Uh, you know, builder was expensive. It was an amazing builder, but I couldn't afford him. And I said, you know what, Joe, we haven't been in the shop seven years. It's time to go back into the shop. Uh, because in 2008, we closed Jomo Design, uh, the graphics business, and I uh, luckily got employed by World Bank. So, in, uh, you know, I had kids and all that, raising a family. Yes, I do. I do a lot of things in the evening when it comes to design, but it, it was not a, a full force on the furniture part. I just did the best I could do was 3D renderings. I never took it to the next level. Uh, and in, at the back of my mind, I've always said, uh, I have actually created something unique. Uh, this was not something I created to get done with thesis in 93. And 90, what I did in 93, it was still true. I, I w- I've been to trade shows. I go to New York. I used to go to New York eight years in a row, checking out what other people did. And if anyone showed up with a line of African furniture, and I never saw it. You know, and I, I went to what is considered one of the best shows in the U.S. Uh, ICFF annually, uh, I think stands for International Contemporary Furniture Fair. Yes. Uh, trying to see if people have done anything at the caliber, me and uh, other, uh, you know, uh, other designers that were collaborating me with me were trying to do. And we didn't see any. So it was kind of disappointing to walk away from it and just leave it as sketches and 3D renderings. And it was a great experience that this Dubai, Dubai event getting out of nowhere and landing on my lap uh, kind of awakened me. Even, even before that, a year earlier, uh, an author of a book on uh, African design contacted me and said, hey, uh, uh, I want to profile you in, in this book. And I was like, I don't do this anymore. I don't mind if someone approaches me and asks me to design, but I don't want to get into building. It's uh, it's a it's a tough thing to do every day. Uh, but you know, she profiled me, and at that profile and the, the, at this design week through Matasavia and this Dubai event, I think has finally uh, reinvigorated me to the point. Yeah, you know, the the reception I got. Um, for my furniture in Dubai was, uh, it, it was one of the most fulfilling, uh, I can say one of, one of my f- most fulfilling design experience for me uh, as a designer, as a product designer, seeing how people reacted to it, the type of questions they asked me, how the media reacted to it. Uh, it was, you know, I, I said, I've always known this, but now uh, others have confirmed that what I had you know, when, when uh, one of the Arab channels did an interview with me uh, and the cameraman left and came back and said, you know what, we come here every year, but what I saw, this is unique. This stands out. You know, That's what awesome. he's saying pretty much is 
the same guys show up every year yep. you know, with the Italian and uh, furniture. And we see it again and again. And they're saying, for, you know, we got the corner booth and the amount of traffic we handled was very impressive. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, I, I think finally, slowly the window is opening and I'm, I'm hoping what has what is being slowly achieved in architecture through david hopefully either through me or another african designer will be achieved through a furniture I agree. Uh, at least that's my hope i agree are you going to try to get these chairs made commercially uh yes we're trying our best <laughs> as again that's also a struggle i mean getting chairs built for commercial uh, use and it is not the easiest thing. You, you need fabricators, you need willing partners, you need um, uh, the, the best case scenario for most of us designers, furniture designers is for someone to license it uh, because you know large companies have the tools. Like I said, the, the battle I went through to be able to bend that chair because I like the design idea. And I said, I'm not gonna glue three pieces of wood. I want one piece bent because yeah. visually that that just does it. Absolutely. Uh, so it's like the Eames chair, right? Huh? Yes, it's like it's like the Eames chair. You know what? But the reverse of the Eames chair. <laughs> exactly. You know, but there is a manufacturing process for that, and only large companies can do that. So. It's a lot of, uh, like I was saying, a stamping machine, a mold, uh, a positive mold and the negative mold that will press it, hold it, let the glue dry, and it keeps the shape. And what that does is it makes it also structurally sound. It can handle any weight. If somebody's in their 20s or 30s and they're thinking about a career change, right? a lot of times they think about either graphic design or some, some element of design and, and what turns them off is that, oh, I don't know how to draw. So, you know, you definitely need to know how to draw, but I feel like it's a learned skill and people should never back down from trying to pursue it. Do, do you feel like it's too late for somebody in their 20s or 30s to go into like an industrial design field? Or... I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, half of it uh, and... Uh... This might be coming from my own personal experience. I really believe half of it is passion. I, I, I think I more than half of it. I think it's like 80% passion. You know? I agree with you because I, sometimes I would be doing this stuff and I would notice it's one in the morning and I have to get up at 4.30 in the morning to go to work. And I have completely, I'm completely lost in what I'm doing. Uh, and Again, it's doing these tiny thumbnail sketches. You know, I keep doing it and I look up and I see 1 p. I mean, 1 a.m. And I just panic and jet off. But half of it is passion. And I'll be honest with you. I am not, uh, it, when I was in design studio class, uh, comparing myself with my other classmates. Yes, I've been sketching since I was a kid. But for me, is constant practice. When I don't practice, I actually see myself uh, my sketches actually getting horrible. Uh, and I had a few classmates, you know, they can skip class two weeks, they come in and, you know, voila, they have the amazing drawing. And some people just have it. I am the practice guy. I agree. I am the hardworking guy. I keep working on it until I get it right. Uh, so if, if you have passion, if you're a hard worker, and, and that, as I get older and through school, I've noticed I came from Africa. I grew up without a computer. 
and I was able to catch up with my classmates, right? So what I noticed is, is not what I don't have, is what is driving me that's more important. I agree. I think that goes for any field. Like you could yes. be a janitor. Yes. I mean, you're not going to work your way out of that job unless you're passionate about it. I really believe that. I feel like people who see that promote you, they take you, they see potential and that grows. But it's I mean, yeah. passion plays a role. And half of it is, you know, on some of these things we do is luck. I mean, a certain play, if or you're ready, as you like to go, yeah, <laughs> if you're ready, something is bound to happen because you've got your portfolio you're ready. prepared. Yeah, you're prepared. Yeah. You know, there is the what they call here, the elevator speech. You run into the right guy in the elevator and bam, with one minute, you convince that person you're the right person. I agree. Why? Because you're prepared. If you're not prepared when that thing happens. And most of the time, it's like the story I've been telling you. For everything that I've been prepared, there's been payback. Sometimes it's been coming late. I hope this one is the one coming late. Uh, but it, we need to be prepared. You need to learn. I am always, I tell you, I am a number one YouTube watcher to learn anything and everything, even at work. And at work, I do, uh, you know, we do book design, the group I work with. In half of the skills I've picked up at work is just by watching others or willing to learn from others or willing to learn from YouTube. And the amazing thing is people are more than willing to show. This is an eye opener even for our culture. It's amazing what people are willing to share freely to you online. Yep. And we're always worried uh, about not sharing. I think we should share. The pie is too big. You know, I cannot be, or 10 of us cannot be the only industrial designers with, you know, uh, with Ethiopian ancestry. There should be hundreds of us. And China, that's how China's coming out of this mess. China recognized at some point saying, we need to have our own industrial designers. We cannot be sending out others or you know hiring others to come and do our products. We need to do it ourselves. Now, I think industrial design also helps uh, you know developing countries come out of uh, poverty. You get to design what is good for your own country. That you address the needs. I mean, Last year, I ran into uh, a manual tractor designer at one of the events. You know, uh, he's, I think he's Ghanaian or Nigerian uh, uh, partners who decided, you know, no one will design us a tractor like this. Oh, because is this Hello Tractor? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I know him. So, uh, he's, yeah. he's married to a good friend of mine. She's okay. Ethiopian or Eritrean. Okay, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. So yeah. I ran into them and I had a great conversation with them. And I'm, I, I'm, I was looking at what they're doing. I said, I get you. Yep. I get you because you're trying to do something that no manufacturer will be willingly doing it for you. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So what's next, Joma? What, do what, do what, what does the future have to hold? Uh, well, I hope I can get this uh, at least one chair out in the market. I'm actually putting all my focus on this specific chair. I actually don't want to distract myself by designing... 10 different chairs, 10 matching chairs. I know what the reaction towards this chair is. If God willing, if I could have uh, this manufactured or licensed, it would be, I think, a great achievement. I'm hoping with some of the uh, media uh, and other you know, people getting interested, it will get there. Uh, so I think within for the next two to three years, I'm, I'm going to, other than doing my day job, I'm, I'm going to focus on getting this 
specific chair out in the market, uh, be it through art shows of my own or participating in trade shows. Um, there are other different plans that I'm thinking about and probably will publish as things connect. Uh, definitely I'll do some uh, uh, crowdfunding uh, to get this off the ground. So hopefully, you know, friends and family and others will be interested enough to say, uh, you know what, I want to see this in market and, and believe in the dream I'm trying to put together. Uh, I'm definitely also getting older. <laughs> And I don't think I can keep up with this energy of trying to keep literally two jobs. So I, I have set kind of a deadline for me and myself saying I need to get this uh, off the ground within a limited amount of time. And, and hopefully we, I'll have uh, believing partners with me that will let me get there. So how do people get a hold of you and how do they get to see or where do they get to see some of your work? Uh, best place to check out my stuff would be, of course, uh, uh, at www.jomofurniture.com. And feel free to email me at uh, jomo at jomofurniture.com uh, or just follow me on my Facebook uh, page. Uh, if you just search Facebook Jomo Furniture, you'll see it. And, just, uh, and I update that more often. Uh, that my own webpage or so anything I'm working on, especially when I get back in the shop, I, I do GoPro some of my work and uh, post it there. Uh, the other thing, I am open to anyone who wants to look into industrial design, want to learn about industrial design. Since I'm very passionate about it and I want other Ethiopians or other Africans to really get into it, if you have any questions about anything related to industrial design, uh, just let me know. Shoot me an email uh, or just ask me on Facebook. Chat with me. Uh, if uh, if I have time, I'll live chat or I'll respond when I can. Uh, but yes, please, uh, I mean, follow up with me on what is your passion when it comes to industrial design. I hope people understand how rare it is to find not just a black person doing industrial design, but an Ethiopian I remember yeah, walking into. I'm not, I'm not the first one though. Yes, yeah, you know? but you know what the crazy thing is? Is I I remember walking into the Design Within Reach. I used to love going in there. I love furniture. I I want to become a furniture designer. There you I, go. I'm retired doing that. But now I know why you asked me that question. Yes. Yeah, and, and seriously, I, I I there's a wall inside the Portland Design Within Reach where it's just a bunch of furniture designers' photos, and it's like there's about a hundred of them, not a single black face on that wall. I think there was like one Asian, and I think it was um, probably Naguchi. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I think I, for some reason I want to say it's, it was Yoji Yamamoto, but he's a friend. Of, he's a fashion designer, not a friend. You know, I don't know who he was, but uh, no, you know who it is. Is I actually know who it is. He has a store in Tokyo called uh, Plus Minus Zero. Anyway, I'm really, honestly, I'm such a, a champion of yours, and anything you do. Please let me know. I'll be more than happy to support because it's such, it's such a, a a small space for black designers, let alone Ethiopian designers, to be working in. And you know, any support that our community can show you, I hope people will get together when you decide to launch this project. So, really, best of luck to you. I'm I'm just so proud of what you're doing, and I'm Thank glad we so finally much. connected. It means a lot. It really means a lot. I really appreciate the opportunity to even talk about my story. Uh, but uh, even more the support and uh, what you just said 
is really what, uh, again, we talked about passion, but that's, uh, you know, when people tell you you're, this is something I like, or this is something unique you're doing. Uh, and what I want my own people and my country people to know, or other Africans to know, believe me, we're doing something unique. Mm. If you ever go to a full trade show on furniture, you will recognize it right away. Right. And the industry hopefully will recognize what we're trying to do. I hope so too. Yep. Thank you so much, Jomo. All right. Thank you, Bamne. To find out more about my guest and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit www.ethiospodcast.com.